Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to a deep dive with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this hour-long conversation between myself and GovCal CEO, Louis Gov. And as always, thanks for listening. All views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen Golf Cow's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right. Well, I'm, I'm joined today by GovCal CEO, Louis Gov. And Louis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Good to see you. Nice to have you uh, on on from Hong Kong, where you are currently in the office out there. And, and what what day, what time is it where you are? Uh, so it's Tuesday morning, uh, 9 a.m. And I guess U.S. elections starting in what is it, 12 hours or? That's right. Hours. Yes, yeah, so. just a few yeah. just a few hours ahead. So yeah. I'm excited to have you on. It's been a few months. I'd love to get your thoughts on a whole host of different topics, but I'm going to start in China, uh, one of your favorite topics. But the Chinese Communist Party recently gathered uh, with their Congress, and and uh, I'd love to know kind of the political implications of that gathering and why does that matter to a U.S. investor. Let's start there. Sure. Well, first, uh, good good to catch up. Um, look, I think. Uh, to answer your question, it might not need to matter all that much directly uh, for for a U.S. investor. Um, although, you know, there was one big surprise that came out of the Party Congress, and that was the extent to which Xi Jinping managed to consolidate political power. Um, you know, I think if you look at the past, well, if you look at China's history, really since uh, since it was taken over by the communists, basically for its first 30 years, you had one man rule under Mao Zedong. And after Mao Zedong died, the Chinese Communist Party basically looked at itself and said, well, let's not do that again. That was a bloody disaster. We had, you know, 30 million people die during the Great Leap Forward, another 20 million during the Cultural Revolution. This was this was a debacle. So let's, you know, do a, do away with one-man rule and instead move to management by committee. And so for the following 30 years, China was – it was basically managed by committee by, you know, sort of – Technocrats at the top of the Politburo, and uh, and that gave out much better results than one-man rule. Of course, if you're looking at it from the U.S., you think, well, still that's not a democracy, and democracy is better, and of course it is. Um, but management by committee was still one, much better than one-man rule. And I think here the, the the big surprise, you know, the big question mark coming into this party congress was that you'd seen 10 years of Xi Jinping consolidating power, consolidating power, and the, the, the big question mark was whether the Chinese Communist Party would sort of put up a fight and say, okay, that's enough, and we're going back to management by committee, uh, or whether Xi Jinping basically manages to run roughshod over, uh, over the party congress. And and I think he's managed, uh, you know, the, the big surprise to, of the Party Congress was the extent to which uh, he managed to do just that. And if there was one image that sort of crystallized it all was, of course, the removal from Hu Jintao, uh, his predecessor. Hu Jintao was a previous Chinese president. Uh, the removal of Hu Jintao from, from the proceedings, which, you know, is an image that, that sort of went, went all around the world. 
Yeah, the but, tap on uh, the shoulder. It's time to yeah, go. Yeah, time to go. You're out. Uh, and um, and beyond, you know, be, beyond that, you know, the other big, big surprise was the extent to which uh, Lee Kei-jong, the, the, the premier of the past 10 years, was basically given no jobs and sort of shown the doors and, and put out the pasture. And also the extent to which the, the Politburo, you know, all, all the other members of the Politburo were basically Xi Jinping's lieutenants and acolytes. So it's been a, it's been a full consolidation of power. And initially the, the market obviously didn't like it. Um, and you saw, I think, uh, a, a, a huge, uh, you saw a big sell off on the morning, on the Monday morning following, uh, following the Congress. Um, and to me, this was sort of uh, the crystallization of everybody's worst fears, right? And so uh, I think at that point, everybody threw in the towel and, um, yeah, decided to, uh, to cut their exposure to China. Since then, of course, the Chinese markets have been rebounding pretty strongly. So basically all the foreigners puked it out. And since then, it's been rebounding strongly. And it's been rebounding strongly on sort of rumors that, that China may reopen and uh, – and at least that's the interpretation that you find out there. For me, it's a little bit more subtle. I think what uh, what you're seeing, and it's still, still all rumors, but you're hearing rumors that a committee is going to be set up to deal with COVID, to which a committee that that would make the decision. So Xi Jinping would, in essence, you know, pass on the responsibility to this committee. Uh, that a committee is also being set up to deal with uh, the the real estate problem, and Xi Jinping would deal, you know, pass on responsibilities to this committee. So I think perhaps one of the reasons the market might be uh, might be uh, rebounding is that this fear that oh my God, you know, every decision is going to be done by Xi Jinping, and he's going to micromanage everything, and he's going to make mistakes have to mistake and nobody will be around to tell him this is a mistake, perhaps this fear is sort of getting toned down a little bit by the, the setup of these committees. Although, having said that, for now, it's all rumors. So it could also not happen. What's the, what has been the reaction from the Chinese people? Ah, that's a great question. So I think Xi Jinping, much more than any of his predecessors, well, aside from Mao Zedong, uh, is a very polarizing figure. And I think if you if you go to China and you ask, you know, your cab driver or your waiter, Xi Jinping is very popular with, I would say, you know, the sort of uh, working classes. Um, and he's popular because he's, uh, you know, done a big anti-corruption drive. He's popular because he uses a lot of nationalist rhetoric, which which goes down pretty well. But if you talk to, to rich people, here there's been a massive change in mood. Um, you know, if you go back 10 years and you talk to rich people, they were all very pro-Chinese Communist Party. They were all very, you know, much of the belief that China was going from strength to strength and that China was a land of opportunity and that a lot of the great things were happening. And this has gone 180 degrees. Um, most, most of the rich people in China are either angry because of the tech crackdown in which they lost a lot of money or they're angry about the real estate crackdown and most importantly they're angry about the zero covid uh you know a lot of the rich people live in shanghai and shanghai had a horrible old, you know 57 day lockdown where you couldn't leave your apartment you know you couldn't like take your dog for a walk you you had to wait for the government to bring you food and sometimes that wouldn't come for two or three days and you know for for a lot of rich people in china you know they might have kids that uh go to school in the us or in australia or the uk or wherever uh either university or high school some of these people haven't seen their kids for two or three years because of the lockdown so there's um i think there's a real bifurcation now 
own society, whereby most of the, the I think most of the rich people are um, are less and less pro. Chinese Communist Party, less and less, pro, and definitely less pro Xi Jinping. And so I think if you're, you know, a rich guy living in China and you saw the extent to which Xi Jinping has consolidated his power, that, that was, you know, you're not welcoming that news. That's not, that's not great news for you. Yeah. I mean, I've read reports that like entrepreneurs are fleeing the country and, and they're trying to, is that all true? Is that happening? Is that what you're seeing over there as well? You've definitely seen it out of Hong Kong. You've seen, I think you've had something like a hundred, Thirty or 140,000 people live Hong Kong in, in the past 12 or 18 months, um, which is the, the biggest exodus you've seen out of Hong Kong ever. And um, and partly because it's easier for people from Hong Kong to leave, right? Uh, the UK, for example, said uh, we'll take them. And a lot of rich people in Hong Kong had spent the previous decades making sure they'd have a Canadian passport or an Aussie passport or a uh, U.S. passport. So a, a lot of the rich be- – yeah, some of – you know, and it's it's a real loss for society because a lot of the people leaving are, you know – your lawyers, your dentists, your, you know, sort of upper middle class. And, and so it's, it's definitely happening in Hong Kong. Um, I don't think it's happened as much in China, partly because there's a real logistical challenge, uh, to, to leaving. You know, where do you go? Who, who accepts you? Um, how'd you take your money? Um, it's the, that part is, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's happened to China. And on this, uh, I think if you're Chinese, the, the game has dramatically changed since the Ukraine invasion. You know, the the reaction of the Western world, you and I talked about this before, but yep. the reaction of the Western world to the Russia's Ukraine invasion was to confiscate the assets of all rich Russians living in London or Paris or Geneva or wherever. Um, so now if you're Chinese and you see this, you think, well, hold on. If I move to Vancouver or if I move to Sydney or if I move to London and things get worse between Xi Jinping and the U.S., is all my stuff going to be confiscated? Right. Uh, so all of a sudden it's, okay, so where where can I move? Yeah, that's uh, and, where, and where can I move my assets so for them to be safe? And I think if you're a rich mainland Chinese person, there's probably not a ton of places. The, the, the obvious places are Singapore, Dubai. But these are fairly small places, right? There's only so many Chinese people that can move to Singapore, so many that can move to Dubai. But, of course, it's very bullish for, for assets and especially real estate in, in those jurisdictions. Final question on China, and then I want to move on to the U.S., but how should a foreign investor then play China at this point? Like, is it still land of opportunity, or is it become scarier and scarier for investors to dip their toes in there? How would you play it if you're a foreign investor? Ah, that's another great question. And I'm going to make like a Jesuit priest and answer with another question. Um, and I would say it all depends what kind of foreigner you are. You know, I think I've spent the past two and a half weeks since this party congress doing calls with, with our clients who are all very worried that China's become uninvestable. You know, that, that's the theme, the theme of the day, right? It, it used to be that, you know, 15 years ago, it was all about zero interest rates. And then we moved to, to zero carbon. Uh, then we moved to zero COVID, uh, all of which were disasters, by the way. Uh, and now we're at zero China. But don't worry, zero <laughs> China is going to work out great. Uh, all these other zeros turned out to, to saw the, saw the seeds of, of massive economic misallocations of capital. But I'm sure zero China will work out great. Um, so anyway, so no, you're right. The theme of the moment for a lot of investors has become zero China. But I would say a lot of investors that come from the Western world, 
Um, I think it's very different if, let's say, you're Saudi Arabia or you're Kuwait or you're uh, – obviously, if you're Russia, China is one of the few places you can invest. Right. Um, and the reason I highlight this is I think you know we should ask ourselves a simple question is where in the next 10 years are savings going to grow? You know, who are going to be, you know, for the past 20, 30 years, you've seen U.S. pension funds grow very rapidly because the bulk of the U.S. population was aged between 30 and 60. So everybody was working and saving. But demographically, the U.S. is shifting. Europe has already started to shift. A lot of pension funds, instead of being uh, net investors, are now going to be net redeemers to pay out to pay out the pensions that people have put in. So if we take a step back and think, hold on, who's going to be saving in the coming years? Um, right now, what seems pretty obvious to me, and again, we and I have talked about this before, but we're in an energy crisis today, and more and more of the world's capital is flowing to places like Saudi Arabia, like Kuwait, like Nigeria. Nigeria. Um, and in these places, China's for these places, China is quite an attractive destination for capital because it offers very, very stable bond yields. You know, U.S. bond yields, uh, Chinese bonds are up for the year. You know, now the renminbi is down a little bit, uh, but China is one of the few bond markets that has held its own this year. That and hasn't so, gotten enough press. No, nobody, nobody's talking no about it. talking about but, that at all. But, but, you know, China is the Chinese bonds are the one bond market in the world that have actually done their job of diversifying the equity risk. You know, every other bond market has failed. You know, you own bond for mostly one reason. And that one reason is when equity markets crash, I make money on bonds, right? It's like, it's my fail safe money. And bond markets have failed you. For the past 18 months, bond markets have been failing you everywhere except China. And if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're Kuwait, I think you notice that. I think you say, okay, maybe this is, this is not a, a bad opportunity. So long-winded answer to your question, Jeff, but you know, it's, uh, I think if you're American today, the political pressures are such that, and also the client pressures, nobody, everybody tells you, look, I don't want to be seen to be invested in China. Right. Um, but that creates tremendous opportunities for, for other people. Um, and these other people are the places where the savings are going to grow. Yeah, I just, you feel in this tug of war because it's, there's the, you feel enticed into China because of the growth and because of, um, and because of it almost being, you know, the, the new reserve currency of the, of the East and all, all these things that you can put on the plus side of the column. Um, but then, you know, it seems like the U.S. and China are becoming less friendly, right? And, and, I, you know, I, I highly doubt that we end up in a physical war with China, but it could be economic and if, if it isn't already. And so you just as an investor wonder, is my investment safe? Are they going to come after my investment? You know, those type of things kind of rattle through your head, trying to figure out how you can, how you can uh, navigate that. So, well, look, I think that's, I think you, you, you've put your finger on it. Um, and I love the, the term tug of war because right now the U.S. has in essence, the U.S. is in a sort of covert war with against Russia, right? I mean, you know, you're funding Ukraine, you're providing all the satellites, you're, so there's a war, there's a sort of covert war going on against, against Russia. Now, the U.S. is taking, at the same time, the U.S., of course, has its war against climate change. And, you know, you saw, you saw again 48 hours ago, President Biden promising that there'll be no more drilling in the, drilling for oil in the U.S. So, so you've got a war against climate change. That's fine. 
And at the same time, you decide we're going to basically have a covert war against uh, the world's second largest oil producer. Then we're going to pick this time to have a massive fight with OPEC+. Plus. Uh, because there is like, you know, the relationship with Saudi Arabia has deteriorated to a point that, you know, hasn't been seen really since the oil embargo in the 1970s. You mean between so, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? Yeah, between the yeah, U.S. Yeah. and Saudi Arabia. Yep. So there's a massive fight going on there. And amidst all this, the U.S. decides, you know what, I'm going to now pick an e- basically launch an economic war against China and prevent the export of all semiconductors to, to China. Now, uh, you, you might think that every one of these wars is amply justified, that the U.S. is right to take on China because it's a horrible regime, that the U.S. is right to take on Saudi Arabia because it's a horrible regime, that the U.S. is right to take on climate change because it's, it's a, you know, an emergency, and that the U.S. is right to take on Russia because they've invaded Ukraine. Um, but, and you know, the question is, does the strategy of taking on all four at the same time make sense, right? That to me, um, you know, right now, I, looking at it from the outside, the, the U.S. feels a little bit like a drunk, except it's not drunk on alcohol, but it's drunk on, on its own power. It's sort of drunk on its own hubris. Um, like the, 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 the guy in the bar who wants to fight everybody at the same time. Uh, you know, the, the drunk in the bar. And, and to me, that's what the U.S. feels like. It's, okay, you know, I, if, I would say, what, you know, the old story of divide and conquer, right? Like, you don't want all your enemies to unite at the same time. Wouldn't, don't you think it would make more sense for the U.S. to say, okay, you know what, first I'm going to take on Russia, and when, when that's done, I'm going to take on China. And then when that's done, I'm going to take on Saudi Arabia. Picking them on all at once, to me, seems like a very dangerous proposition for, for the U.S. and one that uh, I think a lot of U.S. investors are underestimating. Well, you brought up energy in terms of it, uh, the U.S.'s relation with uh, Saudi Arabia, but I do want to talk about energy markets. Um, and actually, so you, yeah, you, you walked me right into that one, which is great. So I, what are your thoughts on energy right now? Uh, obviously globally, but then again, as a, as an investor, given the nature of this podcast, uh, how, how do you sift through what's going on in the energy markets right now, and what should you prepare for? Well, again, I think uh, going back to this idea of war, the U.S. right now has a war against the top two energy producers outside of the U.S., for all intents and purposes, Saudi Arabia and Russia, plus a war against climate change, which means that this war against climate change means that the U.S. is actually fighting its own domestic producers as well, because concretely that's, uh, that, that's what it means. So, you know, you, you, put it, you put this together and, you know, who has any incentive whatsoever to, to increase production? Um, now, we're living in a somewhat artificial world where the world's second largest economy is still offline. You know, in, in China, people are not traveling. They're not buying cars because why would they when you're living minimal lives where you go from work to home and back again? Um, because you're afraid that, you know, if you go to the movies or if you go to the shopping mall and somebody tests positive for COVID, you're going to get locked down there. So, you know, while China is still in this sort of zero COVID mentality, you know, China's basically consuming one and a half, two million barrels less than it otherwise would per day. Now, my big fear is, is pretty simple is that, you know, China's not going to do zero COVID forever. And that at some point in the next, I don't know, six, eight, 12 months, China's going to reopen. And when China reopens and you get this sort of million and a half, two million barrel per day increase in demand, at the same time, 
the U.S.'s ability to sort of massage the price of the strategic petroleum reserve will have disappeared because it turns out that the strategic petroleum reserve is misnamed. It's a strategic midterm reserve. And, you know, you, you can only spend it once and now it's been spent. So, um, no, I look, I think in energy wise, you know, my, my big fear is that, and you know, China reopens, energy prices shoot up and that the, the shoot up in energy really breaks the back of a lot of assets out there. It breaks the back of the U.S. consumer. It breaks the back of real estate a lot of places. Um, because let's not kid ourselves, the, the combination of higher interest rates and higher energy prices is, is seldom a very happy one for, well, for the consumer and for broader growth. Yeah, I think I heard you say recently that you thought that the energy portion of the S&P 500 was going to head to close to 15, 15%, 15%, 15%, and I think it's near five or so now. Yep. Walk me through that. Well, look, I think if you look at through cycles, it's been at 15% uh, many times. It was there back, back in 2008. Um, but the reality is that I think there's three different kinds of bull markets. You have what we call in our research the Schumpeterian bull markets uh, that are driven by new inventions. Um, people get very excited, um, and you know assets linked to new inventions, usually technology or healthcare, get get re-rated. So that's one kind of bull market, and that's the kind really we just had for the for the past decade. Then you have what we call in our research the, the Ricardian bull markets, which are linked to, in essence, new markets being opened up to capitalism. So in the 1980s, you had Japan. In the early 2000s, you had China. And, you know, the markets get very excited about the idea that, you know, if only we could sell one tube of toothpaste to every Chinaman, then, you know, the growth is infinite, etc. So that's your second kind. And then your third kind of bull market is what we call the Malthusian bull markets. And it's this fear, and you know, markets are driven either by greed or fear. So the first two are driven by greed. The last one is driven by fear, the fear that there's not going to be enough for everyone, uh, which happens, you know, recurrently through capitalism. Um, you know, you, you wake up and you think, oh, no, there's not going to be enough oil. Oh, no, there's not going to be enough food. And, you know, because it feeds fear deep down in at every one of us that we're going to run out you know that that's why we save and that's why that's why we are the way we are and uh and today i think we have started a malthusian bull market you look you look at what's doing well uh in the markets today and it's everything linked to the idea of there's not going to be enough for everybody whether it be food whether it be energy whether it be metals um this is this is where the new bull markets uh and when you look at malthusian bull markets they they never end until energy is at least 15% of the S&P 500. Um, so we're still, I think, you know, it's still early days in the energy bull market. Is there an area of energy that you like more than others? Well, look, I think you can look, you can look at energy like one big pyramid, right? right. At, the very, at the very top, you have the cleanest forms of energy. So your, you know, your, your windmills and your solar. And at the bottom, let's say you have the dirtiest form of energy, so your coal. Um, and then, you know, you have your oil, then your gas, your natural gas, then your nuclear. And I would say that, you know, the, the lower down you go in the pyramid, the cheaper the assets are. You know, you can, you can buy, 
coal mines for two times cash flow. And so, the, you know, you, you can buy tar sands in Canada for three or four times cash flow. So the dirtier you are, the cheaper you get. And the cleaner you are, the more expensive you get, partly because of the way we've organized the money management industry, where we've told so many money managers, you can't play at the bottom of the pyramid. You can only play at the top. Um, so, you know, I, I think this bull market and energy won't be done until everybody's allowed to play all over the pyramid. Um, that basically people are told, well, you know what, uh, you can buy coal again because, you know, we need, we need to make investments there. Um, and so in the meantime, so yeah, the part I like the best is the bottom of the pyramid. You know, I look, if the market is going to give me companies that are trading at two, three, four times cash flow with massive growth for the next five years, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, you know. And yes, you can tell me, but it's dirty, and you know, you're not supposed to do that. It's not politically correct, etc. But you know, my first job is make money for clients. Um, and you know, if the market is going to give me opportunities to do it uh, handsomely, then I'd be failing in my fiduciary duty to to not pick up on that. And so today, no, I like the coal names. I like a lot of the oil names. I like, you know, the natural gas names. I think there's still a lot of money to be made there. And then what do you think the next steps are, or just walk me through kind of like the the months ahead for Europe, and then we'll, we'll transition on from energy. But Europe and Europe's energy needs, uh, that's been a big theme this year and the kind of the fear of what the situation was going to bring to them this winter. It seems like recently they've had uh, maybe better news, um, you know, than maybe what most originally feared. But where do things stand now and how do things play out over the next next few months for Europe specifically? Yeah, so look, I think the bearishness on Europe is obviously sky high, right? Uh, if you want to think of one victim from today's energy situation, you know, Europe obviously uh, runs high because they've, they've followed completely, you know, frankly, asinine um, uh, energy energy policies. But markets are made at the margin, and a lot of these really stupid energy policies are quietly being dumped. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for one bullish argument on Europe, Europe definitely had the highest cost of producing energy out there, and which is a crying shame because if you look, look go back 10 years ago when France was producing 90% of electricity with nuclear, um, you know, if we were still doing that, we'd actually have a pretty cheap cost of, of electricity. But we did, you know, we decided, oh, no, nuclear is bad, so let's do, uh, let, let's do, you know, windmills and magic mirrors. Um, and so Europe's solution today is, is a pretty simple one, and Germany's already embraced it. Uh, it's to burn coal. I mean, there is – Europe in the short term really has no other solution. So in essence, we've let the perfect become the enemy of the good. You know, we had the good. We had nuclear, and we said, ooh, let's go for windmills and solar. And when that didn't work, now we have to go all the way back to coal. Um, and I think it was actually the Saudi energy minister who came out and said, Europe has successfully done its energy transition to coal. Um, it's like we've, you know, it's, it is the, the, the tragedy of, of, of what we've done in Europe. Um, I think, you know, frankly, policymakers should, should, pay for this for years to come, but somehow they keep getting reelected. Um, and anyway, so to answer your long story, uh, long question to your answer, um, I actually think Europe is in perhaps not as bad a place as people make out because it's now getting cheap energy. Because when you look at coal, it is by far the cheapest form 
of electricity out there. It's the cheapest way to produce electricity. Um, now, it's also the most polluting, and you can say, well, it doesn't include all the costs, et cetera, and, and, and I agree. But I think what happened is basically Germany six months ago said, okay, do we want to be an industrial power or not? And if we're not an industrial power, then what are we? Correct. Uh, and uh, And the answer is, they still want to be an industrial power, and so to be an industrial power, they need they need to burn coal, and that's that. Um, so, where, so where does manufacturing stand now in Europe? Uh, well, so manufacturing in Europe, you know, the the you know the, for all the talks about how they you know the the plants were going to shut down because Correct. of a lack of electricity, etc. You know, it, it just hasn't happened. So now uh-huh. you're left with now you're left with now Europe also got lucky. So far, they've had a very very mild fall. Um, and, and pretty warm weather. Um, and if, you know, if that stays the case, which, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but if the weather isn't, uh, you know, cooperates just even a little bit, um, you end up with, you know, a, a euro that's, I think, decently undervalued, um, and, you know, world class businesses that are trading at single digit PEs. I mean, you take companies like, you know, Michelin, you know, world tire, uh, leader, Store Henzo, you know, world packaging leader. Infineon probably is one of the, you know, if you think we need electric cars, uh, Infineon is right up there in terms of the, the chips needed for, for electric cars. Uh, so, Air Liquide in France for everything linked to hydrogen. So there's still some work, and a lot of these are not trading at single-digit PEs. So I think it's there, there's definitely an ability to go shopping a little bit in Europe. And by the way, you know, if and when China reopens, that's the first time I've heard that in a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, look, I think if if and when China reopens, well, you know, look at Adidas as an example. You know, Adidas has gone from 300 euros down to 100 euros over the past 18 months. Um, now, of course, this doesn't, you know, it could, it could, it could still, it could still go lower, but again, you know, you got companies trading at single digit PEs. So unless Adidas is unable to produce, and by the way, most of the stuff it produces in China anyway, um, you know, it's, I think a lot, you, you do have the ability to, to pick up some stuff. And I think, you know, for me, the way I look at Europe is Europe is increasingly, a sort of play on emerging markets, you know, because you have this sort of base of consumption in Europe, which is never that strong, but never that weak, because Europe is not very rich, but it's also not poor, so you have this sort of base of consumption. And the, the, the big shifts in the economies are whether emerging markets are booming or not. Right. Uh, when emerging markets are booming, Europe benefits a lot more than the U.S. because it's plugged into, you know, it sells Mercedes cars to the Middle East. It sells LVMH handbags to China. Um, Europe is, is plugged into emerging market growth a lot more than, uh, than, than U.S. companies are. And so now you could say, well, the bad news for Europe is they've lost Russia as a market. And, and that is undeniably a negative. You know, Russia was a big market for Europe. But on the flip side, the Middle East is booming. And when China reopens, you're going to have two and a half years or you know, almost three years of pent-up demand, you know, unleashed. You know, it's, you know, Jeff, if you're thinking of visiting Paris or Venice or Rome or anything, do it now. Because once China reopens, there's going to be, you know, 500 million of your closest Chinese friends that are going to be visiting visiting Europe that that summer. Um, so That's good if point. you want to if you want to take the family on a holiday in Europe, you know, do, do it now. So all I'm saying is, you know, Europe in single digit BPs might not be a bad way to play a China reopening. 
Well, that leads me to my next question, which is related to the U.S. dollar. So if I was going to go to Europe, I'd be using U.S. dollars and, and more favorably. Well, that's another so right reason now. to go. Right. That's so another wanna, reason to go. <laughs> so we'll talk about the U.S. dollar a little bit. I mean, it's hitting a bit of resistance. Uh, you know, obviously it's been surging uh, over the last year or so in, in value. But w- what now for the dollar and, and where is it headed? Well, look, you've had a two and a half standard deviation move, right? Um, and you've, you've reached highs that you haven't seen since uh, since the mid-80s. And what's interesting is all this has happened while the U.S. current account deficit was hitting record highs. Um, and, you know, the U.S. right now is basically sending abroad $100 billion every month to, to the rest of the world. Um, and the rest of the world is uh, through the U.S. current account deficit. And the rest of the world is basically turning around and saying, that's not enough dollars, right? That's, uh, that's not enough dollars, which... You know, it's odd. Never before has the U.S. sent so many dollars abroad, and never before has the clamoring for U.S. dollar been this high. Um, now, I think that part of the reason for this, the, the fact that there's not enough dollars going abroad is roughly a third of the U.S. current account deficit is with China. And the money the U.S. is sending to China, I think, is getting stuck there because of the zero COVID. The toy manufacturer, the the shoemaker that earns these dollars, uh, the Chinese, you know, toy manufacturer that earns the U.S. dollars by selling stuff to the U.S. is basically sitting on them because he can't do anything with them. Um, if and when China reopens, to me, it'll be like a dam that breaks. And you'll have a flood of dollar dollars that come back into uh, into the system, which might explain why, amidst these rumors of China reopening, you're seeing the U.S. dollar sort of look like it's, it's topping out. Um, I think the price behavior of the dollar in the past few weeks has been interesting, uh, right? Because you've had, you know, you had a very dovish Bank of England, and the and a very hawkish Fed, and the pound didn't really collapse. You had a Bank of Canada. That was supposed to increase interest rates by 75 basis points, but only increased by 50 basis points, and the Canadian dollar didn't fall. So it, it feels a little bit as if the U.S. dollar move has exhausted itself to me. Well, what are the investment implications then? Well, look, a strong um, a strong dollar is you know usually typically good U.S. growth stocks, bad U.S. value stocks, and and vice versa, uh, which incidentally is interesting because you've had a big move up in the U.S. dollar, and it's not like U.S. growth stocks have, have thrived, right? Uh, and instead, U.S. value stocks have, um, have done better. Uh, the other interesting thing is historically, a strong U.S. dollar is bad news for emerging markets, right, T- typically. And in this huge U.S. dollar move, emerging markets have broadly held their own. You know, in most emerging, major emerging market bond markets are massively outperforming U.S. treasuries um, in spite of the rising U.S. dollar. And most, and you have a number of emerging market equity markets, uh, whether you take your Indias, your Brazils, your Mexicos, your, your um your Indonesias, your Singapores, they're all, you know, give or take 5%, roughly flat for the year when the U.S. market is down 20 25%. Um, again, very odd in the face of a very, very strong U.S. dollar. So uh, to me, you know, I, I tend to think that bear markets are there for a reason, and it's to change the leadership from one group of stock to the next. I also tend to think that where you can make the most money is when everybody is convinced of one thing, but the markets are already pointing to another direction. Right. Um, and today, 
everybody is convinced that you know the USR is the cleanest dirty shirt that the uh, you can only be invested in the US etc meanwhile you know brazilian bonds and equities are up for the year you know singaporean um you know equities and bonds are roughly flat for the year same with india same with indonesia so the market is already telling you that it's going another way and i think all all you need for the emerging market bull market to to really take off and and become visible to everyone is for the us dollar to roll over so if the us dollar really is in the process of topping out in the next 6 months you see the dollar roll over i think you'll see emerging markets really rip higher yeah, it seems like it's very bullish then for emerging markets. So let's talk about emerging markets. If you were to be a debt owner or an equity owner in emerging markets, kind of w- w- where would you lean or all of the above? Um, well, it, it, you know, it, it all depends on your on your, your your tolerance for risk and and partly on on your risk profile. I think there's there's arguments for both. Um, the you know I've argued uh, at length, and you know that was the theme of my book, um, uh, avoiding the punch, and uh, and it's also the reason we launched launched the AGOV ETF um, that. Basically, Western government bonds were no longer the anti-fragile asset in your portfolio, that the new anti-fragile asset in your portfolio was emerging market bonds because they followed, you know, halfway decent fiscal policies, because they followed halfway decent monetary policies, that you wanted to be in, um, in emerging market bonds to sort of cushion the risk in portfolios. And I still very much believe that. Um, so if you're looking for assets to sort of reduce the volatility of portfolios, you know, EM bonds are it. And uh, so for me, the question, though, is, you know, what what are going to be the next – the big stories of the next six months? Um, so I'm going to ask you, know, you really quick on that. I want to get yep. to the stories in the next six months, but why are emerging market bonds that way? Is it because of the superior yields or just because of the price action? How, why would you describe that they are the anti-fragile asset? And then I'll well, get to the next stories of, uh, that you were headed to. Yeah, that, at its core is most emerging market bonds are still offering real positive yields uh, because they didn't let inflation rip like we did in the Western world. Um, now, some of these are also protected by the fact that they're commodity producers. If you right. take a Brazil, if you take an Indonesia, if you take a Malaysia. Um, but some, not all are commodity producers. If you look at an India, as an example, you know, it's, they're obviously a big commodity consumer. Uh, same, same with China. So it's mostly because, you know, they... I think there was less hubris and more respect for inflation. I think most emerging market policymakers, you know, they went through inflation not that long ago. Uh, it's the old story. You make, you don't make your father's mistakes, you make your grandfather's mistakes. And I think in, in the Western world, we, we're just very hubristic in the belief that, oh, we can grow um, money supply by um, – uh, by 25% a year, and we can run budget deficits of 10, 12, 13% of GDP, and it won't have an impact because, you know, we're the U.S. dollar, and so we're, you know, we're strong, and we're, we can do whatever the hell we want. Turns out it isn't true. Um, turns out that the law of economics, such as we learned them in any econ, econ 101 book, uh, turn out to actually be, you know, have an impact. Still apply? Still well, fine. yeah, I mean, since you've been talking about this, I remember we've been discussing this ever since even last summer and beyond and before that, you know, the 135-pound the offensive linemen and yeah. and especially the uh, the uh, Western market debt. So, I mean, now the Western market debt's down 20-plus percent on the year, right? I mean, it's like 
sort of yep. saw, saw that coming. Um, and you're saying in many emerging markets, actually, debt's held held in there. If yeah, not, no, if you, not up on the year. Well, if you look at U.S. dollar returns on Brazilian government debt, uh, U.S. U.S. dollar returns, um, I think you're up seven or eight uh, percent on Brazilian government debt, uh, which is one of the bigger emerging market um, debt markets. If you look at you know, your South Africa's, your Indonesia's, your India's, your China, you're typically down 5 to 10%, mostly because of the currency, uh, against uh, a U.S. Treasury market that's down 20 or 25, or against a German Boone or JGBs that are down 25 to 30. Uh, so, no, it's been, um, you know, if you put it all in one currency, emerging market debts, you know, they, they've held up much, much better. You were about to say, and I interrupt you, and I apologize for that, yeah, kind of no the problem. themes to come, top, top six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, so look, if you look at the next six months, um, I think there's two big stories, right? Is that I, I call it the Xi Jinping pivot, where at some point, they, you know, China will drop uh, COVID, zero COVID. And, you know, of course, nobody knows when, but um, if and when it does, this will unleash two and a half years of pent-up demand on, on the markets. Um and the other thing is, of course, the, the Fed pivots, which is, you know, what, what everybody uh, focuses on. And you could also say maybe the political pivot in, in Washington, D.C., uh, with, with the upcoming election. Now, I'm, I'm reluctant to make uh, forecasts, you know, 24 hours before we get results. That's the surest way to look stupid. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, assuming, assuming that you do have uh, a, a shift in, in policies in, in Washington towards tighter fiscal policies, because that's typically what Republicans do when there's a Democrat uh, president, they come in and they cut the funding. Um, that's what Newt Gingrich did to Bill Clinton, and that's what uh, uh, the Tea Party did to, uh, to Barack Obama. Um, so assuming we have that again, so th- those are you know those are all in- important shifts um, for, for for the coming year. Yeah. So maybe a final comment. Let's talk about that because midterms here in the U.S. We do uh, you know final votes tomorrow is, is the is the deadline. So. It looks as though, at least if early polls are to believe, uh, that the House may flip back to the Republicans, the Senate, kind of too early to call at this point. But what are then the implications for an investor um, as a result of that? See, for me, I think the, the, the real interesting thing is is the Senate um, and whether the the Republicans pick up a lot of seats. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. It's not as much for now. But for 2024, because when you look at 2024, you have, I think it's seven seats uh, that the Democrats have to defend that are in states that uh, that Trump won uh, in the last last election. So in essence, the the in 2024, the Democrats are in a very vulnerable position in the Senate. They could easily lose seven, maybe eight seats. Um, of course, you could say a week is a long time in politics. Who knows what happens in two years' sure. time, etc. Um, but the reason I highlight this is let's imagine that the Republicans do very well tomorrow and pick up a number of Senate seats and end up with 54 senators. Then you can look at 2024 and think by 2024 they could have 60 or 61 senators. And then that becomes a complete game changer, right? Um, because when you have 60 or 61 senators, you, in essence, you, you dictate what, what the policies are, uh, almost regardless of who wins the presidential election. Um, and so if you end up with 60, so I, you know, I, I, 
this Senate seat, this Senate race is extremely important uh, because by the Next time around, so then the question becomes: Once you have sixty seats, you know what? What do the Republicans do with it? Option one is nothing. Uh, option two is they focus massively on cultural issues, or option three they focus massively on economic issues and you know deregulate the U.S. economy, reform the tax code, uh, a lot of things. Uh, you know, obviously. You know, if if you if you could hope for three, the third option, um, there's a lot of I think low hanging fruit in the U.S. where through you know diligent reform, you could probably unleash a n- next wave of productivity gain. Um, most notably, I think through the tax code reform. The, you know, the U.S. tax code has become so archaic and so complicated. You know, the if you look at the U.S. Tax preparing industry. If, you, if it was one company, if like H and R Block did everybody's taxes, uh, it would be the sixth largest employer in the U.S. Those are all the you know college educated people that really add very little value uh, apart from helping you filling out the forms because it becomes so, so hard. You get rid of all of this, you know the, the the productivity wave that would be unleashed in the U.S. would be absolutely tremendous. And so, you know, if you want to be, you know, that, that, that perhaps is, is, I think if, if you get a, let's say 54 U.S. senators, the market could start looking forward to that. And that, that could be a driver for another wave of bull market in the U.S. Now, granted, there's a lot of ifs in there because you could say, oh, the Republicans win 60 seats and then they decide to focus on cultural issues, hereby creating more division in the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you know, you can spin it different ways. Right. Well, question I get more than any other, at least here, uh, I know that uh, your questions maybe are a little different there, but at least here, there's still just tremendous focus on the Fed and, and its uh, fight against inflation. And so final question, I'll get you out of here with this. Up until now, and even last week, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is still talking tough, right, in terms of their posturing. Do you think that they will remain tough? You know, that's kind of the big question that everyone's trying to figure out is, you know, does the Fed remain as aggressive on this, you know, as, as it seems to say it's going to? And at what point are, are, are they going to be potentially forced in another direction? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think they remain tough, which is one of the reasons I'm, uh, I think the U.S. dollar is topping out. Um, in fact, I think it's been interesting in that in spite of his hawkish rhetoric, the U.S. dollar didn't break out to new highs, right? Um, uh, was it a week ago um, or two weeks ago? Yeah, last um, week. Oh, last week, yeah, it all blends into, blends yep. into one. Um, but um, the look, I think the Fed really has three mandates. There's two that are publicly acknowledged, con- you know, making sure inflation stays under control, on which they failed, and making sure that you know the economy is doing well and on the job growth. So these these are well understood. But there's a third mandate, and the third mandate is ensuring the stability of the U.S. Treasury market, making sure that the U.S. government can, in essence, always fund itself. And I think this is, you know, there's more and more noise coming out of the Fed that they're getting worried about the level of liquidity um, in the market. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the, the more the U.S. spits in the eye of people that the foreigners that have traditionally bought U.S. treasuries, the Saudi Arabias, the Chinas, uh, the, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the more the U.S. spits in the eyes of, of these guys, you know, that, that, that means one fewer buyer of U.S. treasuries. Um, and so then the question becomes, okay, you know, if the Fed is going to 
turn around and shrink its balance sheets by 90 billion a month or whatever it is, uh, who's going to be on the other side of that? Um, and historically, you could say, well, the commercial banks can step in, but the commercial banks will only step in if the yield curve is steep. There's no incentive for them to do it if the yield curve is flat or inverted. And today, you know, it is basically almost flat throughout the curve or a little bit of inversion here, a little bit of steeper there. But there's there's fairly little incentive for commercial banks to step in. So, you know, once the you know, who's going to be the big buyer of bonds going forward? I I can't see anybody but the Fed, to be honest. So I think at some point, you know, the instability of the U.S. Treasury markets will force the Fed to step in. In essence, exactly like what we saw in the U.K. You know, in the U.K., the bond market was all over the place. Pension funds were about to go bust, and the central bank, which – just the previous day had been talking hawkishly, stepped in and said, you know what, we're doing another round of QE. In essence, we're buying a bunch of bonds, which is another round of QE, because if we don't, we're going to have a financial accident of epic proportion. Uh, and I think what we saw in the UK where, you know, we might see in the US as well. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, and I appreciate your time. We've spent almost an hour together just going through everything. Um, maybe, uh, one final kind of bonus question. I know Dave talks a lot about the Canadian, uh, excuse me, the Canadian real estate market and the, the, the bubble that he thinks it is. You know, as somebody that owns real estate up in Whistler, I mean, are you seeing some of that in terms of, you know, what kind of, what's your take with, with uh, what's going on up in Canada? Yeah, look, um, the Canadian real estate market is definitely expensive um, relative to incomes, relative you know, to, to GDP. It's definitely had a great run. Uh, a lot of it was driven, especially in places like Vancouver and Toronto, which are disproportionately represented in all those real estate indices. Um, it was very much – it was a lot driven by foreign money. Um, and I think this whole foreign money coming into Canada has given a hard – Halt both by uh, the way the Canadian government responded to the truckers uh, and froze people's bank accounts that basically the Canadian government didn't agree with. It's like, well, you know, we don't agree with you, so we're going to freeze your bank accounts and freeze your insurance. That I think that gave a lot of pause to a lot of people. And then, you know, on the back of that, also the sort of nationalization of all the Russian assets across the Western world. If you're Chinese, if you're um, because it was a lot of Chinese money, let's face it, you know, coming to buy into uh, into Canada. I think that money has basically stopped. Um, and, you know, against that, of course, you have the, the rising interest rates. Now, I think what's happening now in Canada is not that dissimilar to what's happening almost everywhere, is prices haven't come down, but transaction volumes have just collapsed. There's right. just, you know, no, no transactions happening. So sellers are not yet, for sellers, uh, they're still holding on to the price that was there not that long ago, uh, but that price is no longer a reality given the higher interest rates. You know, the, the place where it would cost you a thousand dollars a month to mortgage now costs you two thousand dollars a month to mortgage. Right. Um, so the the leverage buyer, the guy who depends on the mortgage, has disappeared, which is still a, a big part of the market, and the seller hasn't adjusted yet to that to that new reality. I'm seeing that um, here too. Yeah, yeah, I don't think mm-hmm. you're seeing the same thing in Paris. You're seeing the same thing in Hong Kong. I, I don't think it's a specific Canadian thing. So I think everywhere around the world, we basically have frozen real estate markets, yeah. um, which, uh, you know, is uh, basically. I don't think it's going to put a cap on, uh, on inventory because 
for so many people that I know, at least here in the U.S., it's like they have these really cheap mortgages that they don't want to get out of. Yep. And so it freezes you to the place that you're in, in a way. It's like, well, why would I get yep. the mortgage that I have that I refied, you know, once to four and a half percent and then again to two and a half percent three years later? And now I've got that. But if I was going to trade that to something else, I'm I'm paying seven, you know, so like people yep. are just like, I think I'm just going to stay. Right. And so I just think of that's going to put a huge lid on inventories for the time being. No, no, you're you're absolutely right, and it's um, it's also when you look at the U.S., when you look at Canada, these were two countries where a lot of the productivity came from people's ability to say, "Oh, I'm working in Seattle today, but you know what? I'm getting a better job in Los Angeles. So right. uh, let's let's move the family to Los Angeles." But now, you know, part of the cost of the move is, "Oh, well, I'm going to trade in a two and a half mortgage for a seven percent mortgage." So this new job that maybe pays me. 25% more, 30% more, all of it's going to get taken away by the mortgage. So it's not worth, the, it's not worth doing the move. Um, so, you know, I, I highlight this because look, economic growth is demographic growth plus productivity. We don't have demographic growth in most Western countries anymore. So now it's all about productivity. Now, how do you get productivity without labor force movement? And while at the same time going through deglobalization, it's, uh, it's you know those are two big breaks to to productivity. So, you don't think remote you don't think rem- remote work fixes that? Um, maybe, but not fully. Maybe, but not fully. And I think we've we've eaten a lot of the the remote work, right? Uh-huh. Um, it would like we've we've been doing it, and you know not remote work, of course, remote work is <laughs> with four kids at home. Uh-huh. Uh, not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but with but but to your point, I think, uh, you know, part of the problem with remote work is it assumes a certain level of productivity from your workers. So you like, okay, you're productive, you can work from home, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, it's it also means you don't get to train the 22-year-old. You know, the right. 22-year-old who comes into your office and learns from being around other people and picks up things and et cetera, if you say telling him, hey, you just work from home in your, uh, in, you know, in your pajamas from your studio apartment, uh, how does that guy progress? Right. Um, so there's there's advantages to remote work, but let's let's not uh, you know we're dealing with it as as a business here in Hong Kong and in, and in Beijing. Uh, you know how do we bring on new people, younger people, and train them up if half of the staff isn't here? The only thing uh, I've been able to figure out on the on the potential motivation for moving, I'm talking about the real estate transaction of it, yeah. is you might be in a window now. If the Fed truly is going to pivot ahead, you're in a window where prices have collapsed whether sellers want to admit that or not, but prices have collapsed. Collapse is probably too strong. Prices are, have softened, if I want to be more yeah. accurate. Uh, but in some cases, pretty significantly, right? And so if you're a buyer, you may have a window now to capitalize on that from, an, uh, you know, from a buying perspective with the goal of then you have to carry the interest for whatever, another year or two, expecting that the Fed pivots, you know, reduces rates, and then you're able to refi and fix it into cheap financing again. But you're not going to be able to do that at the price that you're getting the asset at today. So that's only, you know, I've tried to come at this a a variety of ways, but that might be the reason why you would actually make a move now, is if you think that this is temporarily kind of a low in in asset value. It's a big gamble, though. First, it's a big gamble. First, it's a big gamble. And I don't think prices have softened all that much. I mean, it depends on the markets. I see it here, but, but it, it, this is one of the hottest growing markets in the country. So we've maybe seen yeah. it more acutely than others. Yeah. The uh, I think, well, you know, in Vancouver, we've seen prices soften. But 
What do you mean by it's a big gamble? Well, you know, it's a big if gamble. You're that, if you're wrong, then what <laughs> if the what if the interest rates don't come back down from seven? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, it's not they scary seven, anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they said seven percent for the next five years, right, or ten years, and you don't have that opportunity to refi, yeah, uh, and the value and, goes down, and the value goes down, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to advise anybody on the real estate transaction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I appreciate your time. We'll get you back on maybe, you know, hopefully before end of year. If not, sure. we'll see you in 2023. Sure. But uh, wish you very happy holidays with your family coming up here. We're going to be celebrating in the U.S., obviously, Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything else that goes into the holidays. And looking forward to a, a hopefully a really fun uh, final chapter here in 2022. Ready to turn the page into 2023. <laughs> I'll be I'll be over for the Evergreen Christmas party. Okay. Look forward to seeing you again. And again, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks so much. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.